0: This podcast is supported by the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today we're speaking with the lovely Catherine Hagan from Ratio. I owe a lot to Kath. She gave me my very first job at Fulcrum Town Planners, where I worked as a student for three years. She taught me a lot about the industry about creating and maintaining networks and the importance of having good mentors. Working under Kath taught me a lot about the importance of quality and it's safe to say that she helped me develop an eye for detail which is something that I carry with even today. So welcome to the Planning Exchange Kath. Thanks very much Jess. And welcome Pete. Are you there Pete?
1: Yes hello Jess. Hello Jess. Always good to hear your voice.
0: Hello Peter. Hi, Kath. Now, Kath, um, obviously, I know your background and your experience really well, but for our listeners, could you just give a brief um, overview of how you got to where you are today?
2: Uh, Sure, Jess, I'll um, have to go back, right back to the late 70s and early 80s when I graduated uh, from Melbourne University, but I graduated into a recession and uh, that was challenging for people who graduated around about the early 80s and it was into Paul Keating's recession that we had to have and jobs for graduates were very hard to come by. So after a couple of um, very short stints in doing some uh, work in local government, doing data collection, I went overseas. Like a lot of Australians, I went first to London and I got a job there working for the City of Westminster on the um, uh, extension to, or the then proposal, the extension to the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square. And uh, that was a lesson in a range of things, not just in um, how you manage new development in that very, very sensitive environment of, of uh, Trafalgar Square and the National Gallery there. But also the um, impact of uh, headlines that might capture a process. And that particular um, proposal for that addition to uh, the National Gallery uh, really failed because the then, uh, at the time, um, uh, many of your listeners may know that uh, Prince Charles maintains an interest in um, architecture. And he characterised the proposal then as um, something like, uh, looking like the carbuncle of, um, on the face of an old friend. So that particular proposal fell over. Um, I left the city of Westminster and then did some travelling um, through the continent and ended up in um, in the near east before returning to Australia and Um, My first job was with Tract Consultants and uh, Tract, as many of you may know, is a firm that really earned its stripes as landscape architects and came out of um, a a private sector housing really at the forefront uh, in terms of exploring cluster housing, as it was then known, um, which was Merchant Builders and TRACT really undertook the site planning work for merchant builders and then um, moved away from merchant builders to establish their own practice in the private sector um, as landscape architects. And what TRACT taught me was the power of landscape architecture in describing what often planners seek to um really put into planning schemes and try and negotiate outcomes and landscape architects um, aren't of course just about um, naming plants but actually undertaking the hard work of site planning um, the relationship of buildings and built form to landscape settings and how buildings work within them so I learned a lot at Tract and uh, Uh, after about 10 years at Tract, I I left there to establish my own practice with, uh, and very soon others joined me, including Jess. Uh, And Fulcrum um, eventually grew to a practice of about 15 people with three other partners. And it had an arc of about 15 years practice. But by the end of that time, really, Fulcrum had... Um, done its work and the uh, other partners and myself were really moving in different directions and I was particularly interested to move into um, the area that I'm now really the last 20 years of practice exploring how built form can be managed in development sensitive environments. I um, uh, as part of that time at Uh, Fulcrum, I was appointed um, to the Victoria's Heritage Council and became chair of that organisation right at the time where um, heritage management and the legislation around it moved from um, the uh, Historic Buildings Act and became the Heritage Act. So it was Um, focus not just on buildings but on designed gardens and objects so it it really was at a time that um, really uh, brought together the things that I had learned and was interested in um, in my consulting practice with what was happening in
1: heritage as well. Kath we'll come back to we'll go we'll go forward to heritage but I just want to take you back to your thoughts when you were starting up Fulcrum. Yes. Why did, why did you want to do it and sort of what hopes and aspirations did you have? Why did you want to start your own company?
2: Uh, well, it wasn't something that I had set out to do. It was really something that I had thought um, tracked with growing and at the time uh, in the... Um, really the early early 90s, uh, so TRACT was growing, and I thought it was really an opportunity for me to test what I'd learned, uh, n- not just as, a, as developing relationships with clients and my other work colleagues and, and learning how to be a trusted advisor, but um, really uh, being somebody that I could rely on myself, to provide that advice to clients and affect um, outcomes. So it was really not something I had started out in my career as saying, well, I, I want to start my own practice. It was really something that evolved and I thought I wanted to give it a go. And after almost 15 years of practice, I thought I had gained enough Uh, experience and knowledge to know, uh, if I got into trouble, how to get myself out of it, um, which is something else I might come to uh, in our discussion, but it was really something that I really wanted to test myself.
1: Thanks for the support from
2: Ratio Consultants, who provide high-quality, multidisciplinary support services across
0: all aspects of
2: planning, transport, Economic Assessment and Urban Design, one of Australia's leading planning-related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong.
0: See our website for details. And Kath, obviously, as you went through before, you've you've held some extremely important roles within um, the heritage space within Victoria. Has this given you a particular appreciation for our built form history and how does it influence your work now?
2: Yes, well, I think I was. Um, it's a good question, Jess. I, where I was um, perhaps skipping ahead before Pete brought me back to that, uh, his question was really the issue about, well, what is heritage? Now, that's post contact heritage. I should clarify that. Um, so it was really um, starting out right back when I got that first job in London, um, looking at how additions and changes can be made to valued heritage um, that still can um, ensure that it lives on, that it's true to itself, but lives anew. So that was really what sparked my interest in that area of development and development sensitive areas and how it can be managed. And the work that the Heritage Council was engaged in at the time was this uh, coincided with that legislative change I spoke about earlier, which was moving from the old Historic Buildings Act into the Heritage Act and the much broader basis upon which heritage was um, being uh, developed or the understanding of heritage was being um, uh, evolved into not just buildings, but designed landscapes, um, artifacts. There was also uh, shipwrecks. There was a component of the Heritage Act that um, also had um, consideration of shipwrecks. So it was much broader basis to what heritage meant. And that's really how I see um, managing built form now. It's about layers. And context is everything, and understanding that and the different influences on a setting for a building is really what interests me to this
0: day.
1: Kath, that you you've your involvement with heritage has spanned a number of changes, as you described in attitudes to heritage places and what 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 constitutes heritage. Can you describe sort of those changes in a condensed way and also your thoughts on new trends concerning heritage places. I suppose how we live with heritage and how heritage lives with us.
2: Hmm. I think um, well heritage change over the almost 40 years of my career has been one that's moved from fairly tentative steps with the introduction of in what Victoria called at the time um, heritage conservation areas. So they were very early tentative steps in parts of inner Melbourne to manage precincts of um, largely Victorian buildings, terrace housing and the like. And, And it grew from there into much more nuanced understanding of places of significance and uh, as heritage studies um, became more uh, prevalent and that uh, practitioners became more skilled in undertaking them and understanding thematic um, uh, narratives and how buildings and spaces around them, designed gardens, designed spaces work. And so there's been this gradual shift as practitioners also became more experienced moving into um, what Melbourne and Victoria has as as heritage overlay areas with different precincts and site-specific controls. But I think the trends that are emerging, Peter, are ones where, as I said, context is everything. And I think what is, emerging is ones where interpretation is becoming much more um, broadly understood as not just the building, it's also about um, the relationship and the overlap with indigenous culture, with um, what the social trends were of the time and and the place of, of either a building or the social movement of the time and the future what it might be in terms of expectations about um, the cultural basis within which that building or space um, derived its importance and what that might mean for the future consideration of those places and buildings and gardens. So I think that's been um, the interpretation of those uh, heritage significant Spaces and places uh, has changed significantly since um, the late seventies, early eighties.
1: Kath, a long time ago, we interviewed um, Bryce Rayworth, who just I, I think's the best heritage architect going around. But he, in the interview, Kath, he he was amazed that so much of inner city Melbourne, and I'm sure it's the same. Uh, for many cities where our listeners are based, um, outside Victoria, that he was amazed that so much had been sort of preserved and a lot of new development wasn't allowed in those areas. And he was saying, he was alluding to the tension between many other planning objectives and heritage, namely intensification. A- any thoughts on that, that tension?
2: Oh, that I think that tension um, is ever present. I'm, I'm not so sure that I don't see much difference really between heritage and and um, what has become uh, as contested is this concept of neighbourhood character because they valued streetscape and uh, streetscapes and valued areas. But I I think that uh, ultimately ultimately it's an integration of those two objectives. I think that um, as planners, we have to be careful about uh, what it might mean for um, uh, the cost of housing and where people live, um, about changes that can be made carefully in terms of those precincts to allow greater flexibility for different living um or different types of dwellings but i I do think i do think they are valued and they are important parts of our of our city so i'm i'm not so sure i um share Bryce's view about that interestingly
1: I think that uh maybe I'll put words into his mouth (laughs) Bryce if you're listening I I didn't mean to stitch you up there but uh what, what do you think Jess
0: yeah look I agree it is a it's a funny tension and one that I think we we as planners have to deal with every single day it's um it is attention, exactly, exactly how you described it, Pete. I think um, our planning policy is certainly developing to a point where um, intensification seems to take precedent um, to a certain degree. Um, obviously, there are very strong arguments that need to be put forward about that, but I think it's going to probably come to a head in particular over the next couple of years. it will be very interesting to see how things change.
2: What, what I do think um, um Concerns me is um, really the education, the potential for the generalist planner to be captured by um, uh, the expertise of others, other disciplines, where the role of the generalist planner is to undertake that integration, that challenging integration of different competing policies and form of view, and not to. rely solely on, well, if the heritage architect says, you know, this can't be done for these reasons, then that's the end of the story. I think I'm increasingly concerned about the de-skilling of planners and their capacity to exercise judgments and the integration of so many policies and initiatives that they are obliged to undertake or the planning scheme asks them to undertake. And I just think that that's that's something that concerns me about the nature of how decisions are made within those areas, but not just heritage, Peter and Jess, elsewhere as well. That um particularly in environmental areas and a range of other considerations that planners are asked to have regard to in planning schemes. And my concern is that if we're not careful, they we become little more than post boxes for a range of other matters that must be addressed
0: and referred. That leads in perfectly to the next question I was going to ask you anyway, Kath, which was around. Um, whether or not we do need more professionals with skills across all of these different disciplines or is it a case of of jack-of-all-trades master of none how do we how do we deal with that well I don't know about
2: jack-of-all-trades master of none I think the generalist planner I think there's definitely areas where planners develop skills and from my point of view I, I hope and I keep striving to refine and understand and investigate areas of built form, setting, landscape settings, um, development and development-sensitive areas. And that's my area of interest. Um, I think other planners might develop areas in social and economic policy um, considerations and Uh, particularly the dynamic nature of land use that is really changed over um, 40 years of my experience, really moved away to trying to encourage much more um, greater mix of uses and um, trying to layer uses. Uh, And then the third stream, I think there's, an area where planners can be um, particularly develop their skills in environmental considerations, land management ranging from bushfire considerations, native vegetation where the land meets the sea for the way to say surge um, controls and how we manage, um, uh, you know, storm surge. So I think the generalist planner is even more important. I'm concerned that the um, planning schemes being uh, certainly becoming more complex and the issues that planners must address become um, in a way more fragmented, but uh, the role of that generalist planner and the capacity to exercise judgment, having regard to all of those things, I think remains fundamental to the importance for the planner to to skill themselves in in particular areas of interest, but to be able to exercise judgment. And I'm, I'm concerned that I don't see enough planning officer reports that say, well, having regard to a range of issues, I hear what the heritage architect's saying, I hear what the traffic engineer's saying, but on balance, this is what I'm recommending.
1: I think that train's left the station. Kath, I'm, I despair, um, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know uh, early on in our interviews, we I used to uh, ask the question and, and Jess used to find it amusing. And how long do we get, uh, how long till planning decisions are made by robots, <laughs> computers? And everyone says, oh, no, you can't have that. But the way a lot of planning is done is that policy is, this is my view, that uh, policy is so um, restrictive that it's a brave council planner who sticks their neck out um, that the incentive is to is to say you know is to toe the policy line rather than stick your neck out yeah you, you think i'm too pessimistic um,
2: um pessimistic uh i think you're describing um the issue in a short Uh, shorthand way. I think you're describing the issue, certainly. But I think we can't let go of it. My my concern is that we keep loading up the planning scheme and planning provisions, because that's what community demands. Um, But community isn't prepared to fund it. And by community, I mean government, whether local or state government, or federal government, for that matter. So I think I think we can't lose sight of that's why we're educating planners as um, to exercise judgment, and uh, I'm not going to let go of that. I understand the concern, and and I despair sometimes when I see time poor planners because of the very issue I'm describing that that we're as a community aren't prepared to fund the complexity of the considerations we're asking planners to consider.
1: Hmm. And, Kath, what type of uh, planning issues you think haven't been properly tackled? Uh, What what, what are some of the big issues that our professionals sort of let slip? Big question, I know, sorry. It's
2: a very big question, Pete.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we want to be optimistic too. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm sure that I mean the industry's, you know, in, not just in Victoria but everywhere is in, incredibly talented, smart people. But what sort of other too hard policy issues you think?
2: Well, I think um, I think the issue of tr- transport and movement around our city. Uh, with bold policy and government funding is a problem because I feel like sometimes I'm watching an episode out of Utopia because of the (laughs) road programs that we're embarking on, but um, the investment in public transport, light rail, um, biting the bullet on some of those, I think... uh, is is the big issue because so much flows from that. And that is from increases in density to gentle density to um, creating those uh, 20 minute neighborhoods that um, makes even more sense coming out of the um, restrictions associated with the pandemic and um, the increased neighborhoodization of our cities and regionalization in our country areas. I think transport is going to be and continues to be the big issue.
0: Do you think the transport issue is one as well that has, I guess, a bit of a legacy problem? Do you think it's one that has been the big issue for a really long time and just continues to be that?
2: Uh, Yes, but I
0: think that that's why
2: we can't let it go. I think... um, it, partly, it's got to do with density, and that's the chicken and egg issue, um, a legacy issue of Australia's love of the automobile. But um, I think that it's. I, I think that the I think that the pandemic is going to make that trickier in the short term. Um, but I think that. Uh, the death of the city and and densification um, uh, isn't going to happen. It's um, a momentary um, phase in the evolution of the city and regional towns. And uh, I I think transport may be a legacy issue, but it's also going to be one that um, is going to be the way for the future as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, of all the things to come out of the pandemic, it's going to be really, really interesting to see what kind of impact it does have on those 20-minute neighbourhoods that we've all been striving for so long to achieve. Um, You know, just even seeing, you know, obviously more people working from home, more people working from shared offices and those sorts of things in the future. Having having those resources in these smaller neighbourhoods with good access to transport and walkability and all of those things, it's going to be a real game changer, I think, for our cities moving forward. But as you say, Kath, I think, it, and as you put very eloquently, it's it's part of the evolution of the city. It's not necessarily that we're, we're fundamentally changing or moving away from the city. It's just an evolution of um, of that practice.
1: But on the flip side, Jess and Kath, if, if this 20-minute neighbourhood uh, thing does kick off, and I'm sceptical of it, uh, the CBD is going to die. The CBDs in our cities are going to be—it's a—it's I think a net zero some game if if the suburbs grow and prosper in terms of um, neighbourhoods, which are all for. I think it's great. The CBD as the mono centre is going to fade, uh, not just here but everywhere. Any I don't
0: thoughts? think it'll die. I think it'll be as kind of more a- for the evolution of it, I think it just takes on a different form.
1: And that's, that's fading. That's what I was suggesting, just not death. Kath?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know about
2: that. I, I'm not so sure the CBD, Melbourne CBD, um, is any longer the. Um, it certainly sits on top of the hierarchy, but there's been um, big shifts to places like Box Hill. Um, big investment in um, Broadmeadows and Frankston and Dandenong, I'm not so sure that we're going to see the death of the CBD. I think we'll certainly see um, increased shift to those areas and to neighbourhoods. Peter, I'm not so, so sceptical about the development of 20-minute neighbourhoods, I think that what we're going to see is um, this cocktail of, of working arrangements. Um, there will be um, a very large group of people that won't have that option, and I should say that out, the, out front, that there are going to be workers who work in environments where they don't have that choice of working at home one or two days a week. But I think that um, because of that shift for so many others, we are going to see um, greater localisation or sub or neighbourhoodisation, as I called it. Uh, and I think we will see it. I think that that will exist, and that the um, those those regional centres of Dandenong and Box Hill and Broadmeadows and the like and um, and Geelong as a regional city will um, will emerge
0: even stronger. Just while we're talking about the pandemic, what was it like for you, Kath, living in a city that has the record of being the, the world's longest lockdown city? It made me value the
2: parks in my immediate era even more and to such an extent that... Um, I was alerted to a parliamentary inquiry being undertaken by the, our Victoria's Legislative Assembly, um, which has an Environment and Planning Committee. I didn't appreciate that. And they were looking um, into the current and future arrangements to secure environmental infrastructure, particularly parks and open space for Melbourne and across regional centres. And I made a submission with others to that inquiry in the middle of last year, Um, because what I observed was just along with many others, how much those parks were valued, not just in the inner city where I live, but in um, the middle ring and and elsewhere in regional centres, that were going through lockdowns, but um, not as severe or as long as Melbourne's. But there was clear to me that those parks were so highly valued that in some areas I noticed that there was vandalism through overuse in a way. So I think that's the big thing, and that's why I do hold out hope um, or optimism for a 20-minute neighbourhood that really focuses on... Um, what is accessible within um, 20 minutes of your living uh, place. And uh, parks and the park accessibility is very important. And my municipality where I live, there's been some very good um, interventions in small pocket parks in disused or redundant road space. And so there's been these small pocket parks in very urban areas, that have been um, turned road space into parks. And it's been very, very successful.
1: Uh, Kath, there's a a recent book out, uh, Survival of the City, by uh, Edward Klesner and David Cutler, uh, called Survival of the City. I don't know if I mentioned that. And that argues that the cities, there are two classes, the insiders and outsiders. And and they're very critical of city planning in that it has put up barriers in favour of the insiders uh, at, at the cost of the outsiders. And I suppose insiders are those <clears throat> property owners in good suburbs or people with good access to education or, or any number of things. Do you think uh, that as a profession, we warrant some of that uh, criticism that we have aided and abetted, and you men- mentioned planning schemes getting bigger and bigger. Typically, they get bigger and bigger to make things harder to do. <laughs> do, do. Do you think they there is some some element that we as a profession need to recognise that?
2: Um, uh, look, I think in that arena, there is certainly vested interests in planning. But I think in Australia, um, we can't ignore the um, taxation system that we have that um that really uh quarantines a family home from any capital gains tax and and um i I think that can't be divorced from considerations of how cities work and access to housing as a home rather than as a commodity um I, i think that Um, Influence of planners can be overstated and uh, um, so I I think there might be some work that planners can do in really um, managing areas where there's just sort of uh, neighbourhood residential zones, for example. Um, So there's certainly that opportunity, but that bumps up against Again, vested interests, property owners, and a taxation system that really supports it. So, I'm not so sure that there's something that planning alone can do. And I don't disagree with the proposition that there are haves and has nots, and that there are insiders and outsiders, um, and that that over. Really, the the last forty years or so has become much more obvious and and wider, um, but it's got as much to do with the um, uh, the mature cycle of uh, capitalism and uh, the neoconservative movement um, that that really emerged in the late uh, or early eighties as much as planning.
1: Mm, neoconservative. Mm
2: neoconservatives yeah
1: yeah how how is that um how is that brought about sort of increasing well, barriers well would what if I thought, thought, thought it'd be the opposite
2: yeah i i think that neoconservative um certainly the sorts of policies practiced by um, ronald reagan and, and um, margaret thatcher has really unlocked capital and privatization, so that um, utilities are more expensive. That um, free flow of capital moves around the world now in a way that means that housing is a commodity, not a place where you might want to live. Um, so I think
0: that
2: I think that it's uh, planning is not just the. Um, uh, you know, the, the sole repository of creating insiders and outsiders. And I, I think that the neoconservative model in the, the late phases of capitalism have done something to create insiders and outsiders.
1: We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And cap planning controls and policies, as we've sort of alluded to already, are highly complex, but often the assessment systems that we have are very long um, and quite arduous. They, they do create quite a lot of uncertainty and at times quite a lot of high cost for participants. Do you think it's credible to realign that regulatory system with expectations and capabilities?
2: Yeah, I think that, um, so some projects I've been involved with have um, uh, very complicated projects have been, um, you know, taken five years to move through a process. and. Uh, it's my observation that planning and planners require stamina and effective application, and um, over long periods of time, often. And it, uh, and I think that is a problem. I think that the the regulatory system has become very burdensome, but it's. Um, it's just not matched with adequate funding to support it. And I just think that's part of the problem. Um, expectations are high, but no one wants to fund it.
1: I mean, put it another way, um, and it's not just Victoria, into other states uh, in Australia and also overseas, we have perhaps first world uh, regulatory control systems, but third-world or second-world delivery systems in terms of assessment, Um, something's got to give. And as you mentioned, the regulatory uh, policy framework keeps expanding um, and the capability is not increasing at anywhere near the same rate. Isn't it time to realign and have realistic expectations about what the system can deliver rather than you know, jacking up costs, longer delays, um, and people suffer from all that. You know, mm. the punters out there all pay for that indirectly. Um, and is it is it time to recognise that problem and maybe just start pulling back from some of these uh, expectations? I know politically that's extremely difficult. Mm. Um, your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I I sometimes think that what we do is create business for each other in planning. You know, that, well, I think I'd like a report on this, and because I can critique that, and on it goes. Uh, I think we always have to have the eye on what the outcome that's being sought uh, is. And how is what I'm looking for or um, assessing, uh, assisting in that outcome? Uh, The only dilemma with with that, though, that um, I think we have to unpack carefully is every time a new minister moves into an area that says I'm going to uh, cut red tape and going to change the system to make things more efficient, you can just see that it's going to be made more complex, uh, setting up another line of um, assessment and processing, um, cannibalising existing staff within the department to move over to another area to assist with this streamlining of assessment. And uh, meanwhile, we've built up an environmental System or a regulation system um, that, uh, as I keep saying, that we just don't fund sufficiently to be able to effectively administer the and, legislation that we have.
1: And, and sorry, Kath, Also, I was going to suggest, um, you know, what that does to the morale of planners, particularly in local government, uh, um, where they are just a small cog in a in a Machine that is bewildering in terms of no one's got control of it,
2: mm. uh, and that's that's I that's right that that's the risk. But where I think just to be positive about this, where I think that um, where government could most assist with you know cutting red tape and making things more um, effective is actually to undertake some applied research that. I think there's been some good research that's been done by people like organisations like the Grattan Institute, some work at, at um, the in tertiary institutions about things like, um, you know, urban tree canopies, the role of, um, of heat island management through increased street tree provision, um, work that's been looked at about housing and and transport integration. But government seems um, most reluctant to apply that research. And I think there's a lot out there that could be tested. And there are controls that we do have that allow that, that um, I think aren't well used. Things like development contribution overlays and, Um, infrastructure plans, but they become so complicated uh, that councils are reluctant to embark upon them. But that's where I think state government could undertake some applied research, demonstrate how these, um, uh, these areas that we know can make a positive difference to how we see our city or our urban areas or regional cities and actually deliver some of those um, initiatives. So I think that that would be a better way to manage change and sort of cutting red tape, actually deliver on some of the things, some of the policies that are, instead of handing that largely to either local government, but struggling local government, but to the private sector ultimately the private sector is 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 passed the baton to undertake many, not all, but many of the policy shifts in the planning scheme.
1: Yeah, local government uh, the cops saw the new controls., uh, Kath, we've you've written uh, previously about uh, this you know the thought of taking a lot of planning decisions out of local council's hands. Uh, in favour of regional authorities, um, and those regional authorities, I suppose, are mega, mega bodies, but maybe smaller regional areas. Can you can you explain the benefits and why you think that option should be explored?
2: Yes, uh, I'm. I'm not so sure they would turn into mega bodies, but I think the issue. I was. Uh, I remain concerned about is is that um, particularly for planning scheme amendments, you've got councils being um, both the um, proponent and the uh, um, you know the the controller of the planning scheme, the um, assessor of the um, response by independent inquiry undertaken by panels, and. Um, They're blurring the uh, areas of responsibility so that they're both the proponent, the assessor, and um, ultimately the um, judge and jury. And so, what I was looking to do or suggesting one area that might um, also assist in deliberation on um, development approvals would be. Uh, these regional bodies where there would be councillor representation on them, but they would be um, uh, comprised largely of um, uh, professionals and with local representatives from the local community. So it would be broadly based, couldn't be captured by um, one political uh, wedge or interest. But it would be broadly based and it would still allow other councillors who might have a view or have a constituent base that wants to put a particular view about a proposal, they could still make that submission to that body. Um, But the decision-making is done across a region. It's not captured solely by um, political influence, but it's informed Um, by that um, political view, local resident representation, and a body of experts. And I think that is a way of decision-making that would overcome many of the problems that um, uh, often get hijacked at the local level through that planning process, particularly planning scheme amendments
1: it's a tough one we need to make we need to make planning changes much easier in the system um, with amendments and things like that now Kath, an interesting question I, they're all they're all good i hope for you but is there any part of the planning world that you wished you could have been part of and why um <laughs> uh, have you ever done enforcement work uh no i've
2: been involved with matters where um, commenting on something that somebody, a particular um, applicant, has undertaken in terms of development that shouldn't be buildings and works that shouldn't have, that aren't in accordance with approved plans. But I haven't undertaken enforcement work per se. Um,
1: but sorry, I, sh- I shouldn't have sidetracked you there. But is there any part of the planning world that you haven't? I mean, you've done lots and lots of you know roles, but is there anything that you wished you could have been part of?
2: Yeah, I think I I, I admire the skill of the um, landscape architect to address the spaces between buildings and in um, in stitching together uh, spaces and and broader areas. So I think. That's really driven my interest in my day-to-day practice. Um, It possibly might have been an area that I could have um, moved into broader land management in regional areas, and that would have... um, I think that is an area that would have interested me if I'd... um, you know moved in that direction because I think the regional planner has um, has a lot of challenges managing those those uh, those areas that aren't the patterns of human settlement that include managing broad acreage and how that can be approved. So I think that that might have been an area that I, I would have been interested in, but I've primarily enjoy cities and regional centers. So that's where my interest has taken me.
0: In my uh, short period of time in the industry, Kath, um, I have certainly observed that the female leadership in particular has, has become extremely strong, particularly over the last, I'd say sort of five, 10 years. Do you agree? And has this always been the case? So how, how was the, what was the state of the industry when you first um, arrived? Mm -hmm. Um,
2: There were very few women in the room, Jess, and and certainly there were um, very few female consultants practising in the planning arena. Um, Certainly none that... um, there were emerging practitioners, but certainly none that nothing like the number that exists today. Uh, look, there's certainly um, the senior leads of um, um, VCAT. We've got a uh, Michelle Quigley is the um, Supreme Court judge who is um, the uh, president of VCAT. We've got um, uh, Jane Homewood who's the uh, Executive Director of the Department. I hope I'm getting her uh, title correct. Um, Teresa Bisucci is running the planning list in Victoria's VCAT um, Tribunal, and we've got Kathy Mitchell, who's the um, who heads uh, the planning panels Victoria. So there's certainly in that arena. There's certainly um, particularly strong leads um, that are women um, in the in the private sector we've we've got um, planning and other consultants who are in senior positions and have practices that are women there's not so many uh, and I've just been trying to think who are the senior leads in the private sector there's uh, Mervac I know has a has a female CEO um, is uh, Susan Lloyd Hewitts, who's a female um, uh, leader in the in that group, but I don't see many uh, in that development sector like her. So I think yes, we've come a long way, um, but I still think there's. Uh, a long way to go. And I also think that uh, diversity generally has um, still got a long way to go. So it's not just women, it's more people from more diverse backgrounds that I'd like to see in the next um, uh, the next few years emerge.
0: And do you think uh, unconscious bias is still something that women experience in our industry? Uh, yes, it's subtle.
2: Um, and
1: you it, for, for the aunt, yeah, um, c- can you sort of give a, an example without d- dropping anyone in it? I mean, ha- <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm 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 pretty ignorant of all these things, and I'm sure a number of our listeners are. So, can can you sort of give an example of of how that manifests itself? Well, it's
2: it's. It, Done in subtle ways of, um, I mean, there's the cliche about um, golf and the networks that are established. Although I, I do know a couple of women who do and are very good golfers, but um, that seems to be, um, a, a, as I said, a cliched way of networking. It's really done in the um, in the nuanced subtleties of networking. I think that where that. Uh, the unconscious bias exists and it's it's one where um it's so it's subtle but it's there
1: i mean we've got in victoria listeners we've got a women's planning network but we don't have a fellow's planning network (laughs) i mean uh, 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 is it more than that i mean does anything structurally need to be done to promote women in the industry or have they reached um, a level of, of equality and equal, equal roles?
2: Well, I think that, uh, as I said, I think in certainly government and uh, judicial um, offices though in those important um, and very significant roles, uh, certainly You can't be what you can't see, and those women are trailblazers in their own right. And of so, it's in the areas of corporate life that I think where there's still some way to go, and it's in that interface between the private sector consultant and the corporate structures where I think that subtle uh, unconscious bias exists. So it's not in government. Uh, in fact, if anything, there might be some uh, positive uh, um, uh, assistance in government and other areas, you know, um, uh, other organisations with government structures and the like. But um, I, I don't think it's structural, Peter, I think it's evolutionary. And I think it's just going to take time.
0: And Kath, what about mentors? Has that been something that's been part of your success? And if so, who were your mentors?
2: Uh, definitely, I think that the people that you um, you encounter in your early career are certainly significant influences. In the development of of how you manage your, yourself as um, in interpersonal professional uh, relationships, but also encouraging you to remain inquisitive and to um, develop your skills in your particular area. And I, um, my mentor was uh, uh, actually uh, a male, was um, Howard McCorkle at Tract. And he was, uh, I think, an exemplary professional. And um, it, it Howard had a, um, sadly, Howard's uh, died a few years ago now. But he was an architect and a planner and he he worked at Merchant Builders and really led, tract in those very important early and um, growth years. And I learned a lot from Howard and he was very generous with his time and, um. Uh, also, a man with daughters, which helps, I think.
1: A wonderful, wonderful professional, Kath. I remember him as well. Um, so, looking back, Kath, you're going to we're going to put you in the TARDIS and send you back in time, and you are going to speak to the young Catherine Hagan on her first day at work. What, uh, what briefly would you say to her?
2: I'd probably say, "Don't rush. Don't be so." Um, uh, take your time, and uh, you you don't um, you're not expected to know everything. When I first started, I thought, it first started in my professional career, I was very concerned I'd have to know everything. Um, but you learn along the way. I think to know enough what you don't know, and I think that is um, both humbling and a great teacher. Uh, to know what you don't know and to know where to go to find out. And I think that takes time. And it takes time to learn to be a trusted advisor and it takes time um, to um, allow yourself to explore those areas, to find where you want to be and the area you want to practise in. So I'd be saying, um, you know, don't rush, take your time, um, absorb as much as you can
1: I've got a question, another one in where do you get your intellectual nourishment from Kat? Uh,
2: I try and read a lot and I try and read things that have that are, isn't necessarily about planning and um, or built form or urban design uh, so uh, Yes, it's it's in reading. I try and I ha- have a very wide interest. I'm interested in the grand sweeps of history and, and movements, the arc of of movements over time. Um, uh, so it's really in in reading and and travel when we hopefully soon to be able to do that again.
0: I think last time I saw you in person, Kath, you had either just gone to Antarctica. Or you're you're about to go?
2: Did did that end up happening? I did. I went to the Antarctic, and and I went there via, um, you know, Tierra del Fuego, right down the the bottom of the South American continent, and and uh, went um, to did some walking in Patagonia, and also then explored Ecuador, including the Galapagos Islands. So that was a grand adventure. And um, I hope to do uh, many more of them.
0: And where where will be the next place that you visit um, post lockdown?
2: Mm, yes, there are so many. <laughs> uh, gee, I, I actually had done a trip um, before uh, my South American travels where I w- went sailing um, on a, a la- very lovely. Um, boat um, that could accommodate uh, ten people and some and some crew around the Spice Islands, just to the north of Australia, uh, in between Iringa or um, Western uh, Papua New Guinea and um, the and Java, and that was a real eye opener because um, I discovered uh, Portuguese forts. Um, Spanish structures and uh, very late on the scene some um, evidence of uh, the um, East India, British East India Company. So it was a real eye-opener. It's it's an area of um, the world that's just to the north of Australia and it's rich in its history and cultural diversity. And I'd like to go back there.
1: Uh, Well, when our government allows us to travel again, uh Listeners might not know, Kath, that the Australian government has not let citizens travel overseas. Um, That's so, true. So, so hopefully, we're allowed out of this convict settlement. But now, <laughs> I, um, now podcast extra, Culture Corner, Kath, um, we're going to ask you if there's something you've seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners.
2: Well, because we've been in lockdown, Peter, um, I've, perhaps like a number of people, I've been, <laughs> I've, I've watched quite a bit of um, uh, SBS um, On Demand and um, I've had my fair share of Scandi Noir, but one of the programs and series that I particularly enjoyed and commend to you and the listeners is a, is a, a French um, series, not long, I think it's about six series six episodes and it's called Les Sauvages and it's about the first French president of um, Algerian descent and it's a series of our time and it explains the cultural um, movements that most um, uh, that really beset us at, at this point in time but it's a very very interesting an engaging series, so that, I, I'd commend was,
1: that. Was that psychosis?
2: No, 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 no. No, It's fictional, so it's not. Uh, it's not based on fact or foe. The issues that it addresses are certainly um, ones that confront us today. So I would recommend that. It's Les Sauvages, or the all the savages in
0: English, <laughs> but I'd commend that.
1: Okay, Jess, what, what's your podcast extra?
0: Well, Pete, I've still uh, not had a lot of time on my hands with my young baby, so I haven't been able to watch much, unfortunately, and um, I keep falling asleep after a page or two on my Kindle every night, so I, I can't <laughs> say I've got through many books recently either. But what I have been doing, and I did recommend this last time, but I will recommend it again, is The Sourdough Making, which I've definitely done a very big deep dive on in the last couple of weeks and I can say my loaves are getting better and better every single week. Um and I'm eating a hell of a lot of bread. <laughs> but it's delicious. I can highly recommend. What about you, Pete?
1: Yes, this is uh you stick with this story. <clears throat> I, I test drove a new vehicle, Kath, and um I took it in Geelong um and I went to visit where I grew up and and where friends used to live. And I went I just drove around and and one of the places was for sale, and the fellow who used to live there, I went to school with, and his grandfather was a painter. And so, uh, as you as you do, you, I, I looked him up. I looked him up in the Australian biography of you know people, and and there he was. And I remember seeing some of this fellow's grandfather's paintings. So, to cut a long story short, I I joined. I bought some of his paintings uh, online. Um, wow. through, through Invaluable, there's a website, Kath, I don't know if you know it, but it's Invaluable, and that allows you to bid on any auction, basically around the world. And because mm-hmm. the so, I, I liked his work. So I've got a couple of little watercolors, and um, one thing led to another, and there's a lot of connections that it made me interested in this painter. And um, the Dave, it was only you know, it all happened in a space for about three days. So I. Bought the paintings from Leonard Joel, and that was completely nerve wracking, Kath. It was <laughs> well, it yeah. Was, so, um,
2: have you been on a, a house before, Peter? So it wasn't. Uh, I, it didn't
1: I, show- I, I, I have done. I have done that, but I didn't tell anyone I was going to buy these paintings, mm. and um, and I thought, am I paying too much? Um, am I a mug? Am I the you know the bunny in all this? But it. But now I get these emails saying there's another auction coming out there's another auction and there is incredible stuff for auction so Jess, check out invaluable um and it's it's just a fascinating little world i will not go into it too much more but it's very tempting it's
0: a very good (laughs) so
1: so that's that's invaluable
2: peter have you peter and jess what have you been reading I've been reading, um, I've just finished, just on the my experience in the Spice Islands, I've just finished William Dalrymple's The Anarchy, which is really not a news story, but it was, he's an engaging writer, so I've enjoyed that. But I've just started Billy Griffith's Deep Time Dreaming, which um, is really examining deep time and the dreaming, really, of um, Indigenous Australia and and putting some uh, focus on the archaeology of, of deep time, which is fascinating. Mm.
1: What about you? Jess, what are you reading?
0: I've just started uh, Leanne Moriarty's new book, um, which is Apples Never Fall, so it's a bit of a light-hearted um, mystery book, but just a good one for me to... able to read a couple of pages every night which is all that I can muster at the moment (laughs) what about you Pete well
1: I'm I'm slogging my way through a book called the Clark gang which were Australia's uh worst bush rangers they were based um uh around Braidwood between Canberra and Queen um I went through that country a little while ago fascinating but uh it's uh, they killed four policemen they they were terrorized the region for a very long time and that was about 1866, 1867. But the book I'm reading for fun is um, Steam Tra- Steam Trains Today, Kath, because um, it's based on the, all the steam preservation societies in the UK. We've got a podcast coming up in the not too distant future with the head of the Historic Steam Association over there. And just the,
2: Fantastic.
1: Just the incredible amount of tourism that promotes and Also, the technical skills that they retain and a sense of community in place. So
2: fantastic. (laughs) That's that sounds great. Well, you just know the famous Flying Scotsman because they brought the Flying Scotsman engine out to Australia. But those those steam trains really engage so many, not just the preservation of skills, but um, enjoyment of countryside and the growth and development of cities. they um they really encapsulate so much of the um what we have to deal with today and and what's important about the past
1: well i I can never get enough of trains (laughs) and and i know jess is over the moon about this forthcoming interview so um, you just don't want
0: me to make all my train jokes
1: yeah so well, well 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 kathy you've been a wonderful guest today um and uh, you, you've had a stellar career and have been an inspiration to many, many people. So thank you for joining our little thank podcast. Thank you very
2: much, Peter.
1: And, and, and Jess. Jess. always great to do a podcast with you. So thanks again.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Gav.